If you've been here the last several weeks, we started this sermon series on the Apostles' Creed. Uh, the Apostles' Creed is this ancient statement of faith, um, this ancient uh, articulation of the essentials of Christianity. Um, most of the time, we don't do anything like this. Uh, we don't preach through creeds. We don't preach through catechisms. Uh, we preach through books of the Bible. Um, so, for example, the first few months of this year, First Timothy, um, we preached our way through chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through until the end, chapter 6, verse 21, just section by section, uh, breaking it down. Um, we're doing something very different. Uh, this sermon series, something that I've never done, at least as long as I've been at Woodside, and that is, as I said, work our way through the Apostles' Creed. Um, again, it's this ancient sort of distillation of what Christianity is. We titled the series Essentials because that's what the creed gets at, the essentials of Christianity. And so uh, we began several weeks ago, just the first four words of the creed was our first sermon. Uh, the first four words are, I believe in God. And so we talked about how creation and our consciences reveal who God is and that He exists. And then the creed starts to get more specific about who God is. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And so in that sermon, we talked about God the Father and how He relates to the rest of the Trinity. And then, uh, as we continue to uh, last Sunday, even more clearly who God is, I believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth, and Jesus Christ, His Son. So we looked at John 1 last Sunday and the person of Christ. And that part of the creed really starts the longest part of the creed by far that focuses on the person and work of Jesus. And so uh, that's what we're going to continue to do tonight um, as we look at the death of Jesus. The creed for sure mentions that Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried under even the historical figure Pontius Pilate. So we're going to read through the creed now, and then I'll read from Matthew chapter 27, verses 27 through 44. We're going to read the narrative of Jesus' passion, uh, the, the narrative details uh, just before and leading up to when He's crucified. So let's read through the creed, and then I'll read Matthew 27. I believe in God the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, He rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, verses 27 through 44, brothers and sisters, hear the words of our God. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before Him. And they stripped Jesus and put a scarlet robe on Him 
and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. And they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry Jesus' cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over Jesus there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided Jesus, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders, they mocked Jesus, saying, He saved others. He cannot save Himself. He's the King of Israel. Let Him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in Him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver Him now, if He desires Him. For He said, I'm the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with Jesus also reviled Him in the same way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The cross of Christ. What comes to your mind when you hear that phrase? We place this symbol on top of our church buildings in this esteemed position for all to see. We wear it around our necks or in other pieces of beautiful jewelry. Maybe an elaborately designed cross hangs on a wall in your home, or maybe a cross has been inked into your skin in a tattoo with an intricate and interesting design. Or perhaps you've seen a casket adorned with an ornate cross, and if not a casket, then a tombstone with a skillfully sculpted cross. Some of history's most beautiful artwork, masters like Da Vinci, Raphael, Michelangelo, some of history's most beautiful artwork is dedicated to the subject of the cross. And some of history's most beautiful music, pieces by Beethoven and Bach, lament and celebrate the cross. So the image of the cross of Christ fills our world in all sorts of ways, from tattoos to symphonies. And it's often depicted as beautiful. It's often depicted as desirable and glamorous even. But as we read this account of Jesus' crucifixion, it is anything but beautiful or desirable or glamorous. It is hideous. It is gruesome. It is deeply troubling. For anyone to be treated the way Jesus would, was treated would be appalling. But to see Jesus treated this way, this man who was supremely loving, this man who was impeccably wise, this man who was full of joy and peace and grace and strength, to see him treated this way is unthinkably awful. 
But as bad as this is, let's not shy away. Because oftentimes, seeing something gross, seeing something disturbing, all we can do is look away. The shame and the pain and the disgrace of it all forces us to turn away. But this scene is here in Scripture for us so that we might come face to face with the consequences of our sin. This scene is recorded here for us so that we could look squarely at the truth of what it took to pay the price for our sin. So in studying this passage, I've identified three ways Jesus is humiliated here, three ways that we can perceive the wages of sin. First, through the cross, Jesus' kingdom is rejected. Through the cross, Jesus' kingdom is rejected. So perhaps more than any of the other gospels, Matthew's gospel emphasizes Jesus' teaching on the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. So in chapter 1, Matthew lays out Jesus' genealogy as the son of King David and the rightful heir to David's throne. Then in chapter 2, the magi or the wise men travel from the east having seen this star and they ask all in Jerusalem, Where is he who has been born King of the Jews? And then in Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist's preaching ministry begins, and in chapter 4, Jesus' preaching ministry begins, and Matthew summarizes both their message in the same way, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So this short sentence is a summation of what Matthew later refers to in chapter 4 as the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom is the good news that God's heavenly kingdom has invaded earth with the coming of Christ. Jesus is seeking to make it on earth as it is in heaven through this heavenly takeover and the spread of His kingdom as people repent of their sin and trust in Jesus. But what we see at His crucifixion is that both Jews and Gentiles alike soundly reject Jesus' kingdom. Instead of honoring Him as king, they mock Him as opposer. Instead of clothing Him with the regal, noble robe of a king, they give Him a sham cloak. Instead of giving Him a powerful, imposing scepter to wield as king, they put in His hand a measly reed. Instead of offering their most precious metals and jewels for a crown, they twist a crown of thorns and painfully lodge it onto His head. Instead of offering themselves in humble, joyful service to the king, they beat Him as a criminal. They spit on Him as a beast. Instead of lifting him high in joyous celebration as the world's true and victorious king, they pin him to a cross, hoist him up, stripped, beaten, shamefully exposed. And over his head, they nail this sign, which sarcastically reads, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. You see, Jesus' teaching on the kingdom of heaven It confronted the world's view of power. The world says, dominate your enemies, your political enemies, your military enemies, dominate them. But the king of heaven taught, love your enemies. What good is it if you love those who love you back? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? 
Love your enemies. That's the way of the kingdom. The world says, win at all cost. Win at any cost. Whatever it takes, just win. But the king of heaven says, sacrifice at all cost. If someone asks you to go a mile, go too. If someone asks you for your tunic, give him your cloak as well. The Son of Man came into the world not to be served, but to serve and give his life, sacrifice his life as a ransom for many. The world says only the strong survive. Only the powerful survive. But the true King of heaven says, my power is made perfect in weakness. The world says, dominate your enemies, win at all cost, only the strong survive. And so Jesus' teaching on the kingdom of heaven just doesn't compute for the Gentiles or the Jews. And so they reject him. They reject him as king and they resist his call to repentance. So church, we've got to ask ourselves, what's your view of power? What is your ideal king? Is it a dominating, ruthless, merciless, arrogant tyrant? Is it a view that allows for hatred toward the enemy? Hateful words, hateful actions, because, hey, we got to dominate, we got to win, we got to show them who's boss. Is your view of power such that you're willing to concede certain people being taken advantage of because, hey, win at all costs? Does your view of power and strength mean that you've got to cover up your weaknesses? Can't show any weaknesses, got to act tough. Friends, if any of that is true of us, then our view of power is more in line with the ways of the world than the way of Christ. God's power is made perfect through weakness. There is strength in vulnerability. True power is shaped like a cross, not a sword, not a gun, not big muscles. On the cross, Jesus' kingdom was rejected, but now, church, is our opportunity. Receive the kingdom. Clothe yourself in humility. Acknowledge your brokenness your weakness before God and others. Three ways Jesus is humiliated. Three ways we can see what our sin costs him. His kingdom is rejected. And secondly, his salvation is denied. His salvation is denied. So listen again to what's spoken to Jesus as he hangs from the cross. This was apparently a public space because people are passing by and we get a comment from these passing by, and then we hear a second similar comment from some of the religious leaders or chief priests, as they're called. This is from chapter 27, verses 39 through 42. Matthew writes, those who passed by derided Jesus, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked Jesus, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him save himself by coming down from the cross, and then we'll believe in him. Save yourself. 
Come down from the cross. You saved others. You can't save yourself. Come down from the cross and we'll believe in you. So it is assumed here by these people who mock Jesus, it is assumed by them that if he is the real deal, he will save himself. He would not let this happen to himself. And their assumption is so strong that they are willing to publicly shame him, to mock him to his face, because in their minds, there's no way he's Savior. He can't even save himself. How's he going to save anybody else? And this goes to show that they had already denied the way of salvation that Jesus had instructed them in. Earlier in the gospel, Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 through 25, Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and then come follow me. In other words, if anyone would follow me, he cannot live for himself. He cannot elevate himself. He cannot prioritize himself over God or over others. Instead, he's got to deny himself and take up a cross, this instrument of death to self, and then you're ready to come follow me. And then he says in verse 25, for whoever would save his life, whoever would save his self will lose his self. But whoever loses his life, then you'll find it. This is the way of salvation, friends. Self-denying, cross-bearing, death to self, denial of self. But what do the mockers say? Save yourself. Don't deny yourself. Save yourself. Don't bear the cross. Come down from the cross. So besides Christianity, every other religion and every other philosophy of life is ultimately a self-salvation project. Besides Christianity, every other religion and every other philosophy of life is ultimately a self-salvation project. So the more secular versions of this include saving yourself through hard work, saving yourself through making a bunch of money, saving yourself through beautifying your body, saving yourself through maximum sensual pleasure. And then there are the more religious versions of this, saving yourself by following your religion's rules, completing the five pillars of Islam, walking the eightfold path of enlightenment in Buddhism, working your way up the caste system in Hinduism. But whether secular or religious, these are all ultimately self-salvation projects. Doing it on your own, achieving it yourself, maybe with some spiritual inspiration, maybe with God involved somehow, but you ultimately are the one who gets it done. You ultimately save yourself. But the message of the gospel, friends, is the exact opposite. Not only are we not to save ourselves, we cannot save ourselves. And in fact, we're called to die to ourselves, to deny ourselves. We're called to remove ourselves from the center of our universe and submit to Jesus as Lord. He is supreme. He is the center. But not only do we die to ourselves by submitting to Jesus as Lord and making Him our center, we die to ourselves by considering others more significant than ourselves. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul calls us to in Philippians chapter 2. There he is meditating on the cross. 
He's reflecting on the death of Jesus, and he draws this conclusion based on the example of Christ set before us. He says this, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. In other words, don't save yourself, don't prioritize yourself, don't elevate yourself, deny yourself, die to yourself by considering others more significant than yourself. That's what Jesus was doing on the cross. The true king hanging, dying. They said to him, save yourself. He said, no, I count you more significant than myself. Church, hear this. The king, the Christ, the promised one, the Lord of lords, the Lord of glory, the good shepherd, the eternal God in the flesh. He said, I count you. Broken, sinful you, I count you more significant than myself. And so he stayed. He stayed on the cross, dying to himself so that we might live. And now he calls us to do the same. Do nothing from selfish ambition and conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Those who were mocking Jesus, crucifying Jesus, they said, we don't want any part of that. We will save ourselves, thank you very much. We will live for ourselves, thank you very much. And so they deny his salvation. As he's crucified, Jesus' kingdom is rejected, his salvation is denied, and finally, his identity is questioned. Jesus' identity is is questioned. So this last aspect relates to the way Jesus' identity as the Son of God is once more put to the test and questioned. And I say once more because you remember all the way back in Matthew chapter 4 when Jesus is tempted by Satan, twice Satan formulates his temptation, if you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from the temple and His angels will catch you. So Satan is questioning his identity as the Son of God, and the same thing happens all the way in Matthew 27 as he's hanging from the cross. Again, listen to verses 39 through 44. Matthew writes, "'Those who passed by Jesus derided Him, wagging their heads at Him and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and scribes with the elders mocked Jesus, saying, He saved others. He cannot save Himself. He's the King of Israel. Let Him come down now from the cross, and we'll believe in Him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver Him now if God desires Him, for He said, I'm the Son of God. So these taunts are meant to communicate to Jesus, you are not the Son of God. If you are the Son of God, you wouldn't be hanging from the cross. If God desired you, if God cherished you as a son, then He would deliver you. Therefore, Jesus, you are not God's Son. And so His identity is questioned. His worth as a son is questioned. Think about for a moment your own identity as a son or a daughter. 
Think about your own identity as a son or a daughter. It is perhaps the one aspect of our identity that we cannot lose. So take me for example, I am a husband. That is a part of my identity. But I could no longer be a husband. God forbid if Meg died, if we were divorced, I would no longer be a husband. And I am also a father. That's a part of my identity. But I could no longer be a father. If again, God forbid, I lost my children to death, I would no longer be a father, at least not in the active sense. And I am a pastor. That's a part of my identity. But I could, at some point, no longer be a pastor, if you guys ever have enough or whatever. I would no longer be a pastor. But from the very start of my conception, I have been a son. From the very start of my conception, I have been a son of Charles and Nancy Eldridge. It's perhaps the one aspect of our identity that we have always had and we cannot lose. We are children of our parents. And that part of who we are is foundational to our sense of self-worth, to our sense of value, because we receive love and we feel cared for and accepted and celebrated by our parents as their children. So being a son or a daughter to our parents is a crucial part and an irremovable part of who we are. And here Jesus is hanging on the cross and they taunt him, you are not God's son. You are not loved as a son. You are not cherished and celebrated as a son. You are rejected. You are scum. You are rejected by God. You are scum to God. You are nothing to God. You are not his son. And so on the cross, Jesus' identity is questioned. And brothers and sisters, this is still Satan's strategy today for you and me. He wants to convince us to find our ultimate identity in something or someone else besides who we are in God. He will try to convince us to find our identities in our families or our work. He'll try to convince us to find our identity in being religious or moral or conservative or progressive or American or wealthy or athletic or smart or anything. Satan wants to convince us to find our identity in anything else besides who we are in God. His creatures, his children, his beloved sons and daughters. And Jesus here shows us the way, even through the deepest possible pain, even though his circumstances essentially could not have been worse, he knows who he is. And so from his heart, he embraces the truth that he is the beloved son of the father. And it's from this place of internal security that he is able to endure. And the same is true for you and me. If we know who we are in Christ, if you know who you are in Christ, 
that you are loved, that you are accepted, that you are forgiven, that you are free. If you know your identity as one of his beloved sons or daughter, then you will be able to endure whatever external circumstances you face if we know who we are in him. And that is why, friends, we glory in the cross of Christ. On the one hand, the cross is gnarly, nasty, brutal thing. The cross means rejection and shame and pain for whoever its victim is. And the cross of Christ was no different. The cross of Christ meant that his kingdom was rejected. Through the cross, we communicated to God that we want to do power different than how you have us, and we want a ruler different than the one you've provided. So through the cross, we rejected Jesus' kingdom, and through the cross, we denied his salvation. We don't want to do selflessness. We don't want to practice self-denial. We don't want to carry a cross and die to ourselves. So we denied his salvation, and through the cross, we questioned his identity. Our taunts went to the very core of his being. You are not God's son. But mystery of mysteries and mercy of mercies, Jesus underwent all of this so that we could be redeemed. Jesus endured the rejection of his kingdom so that we could eventually enter into his kingdom. Jesus endured the denial of his salvation so that we could eventually experience his salvation. Jesus endured the questioning of his identity so that we could eventually share in his identity as the children of God. So as awful as the cross is, we glory in the cross. We put it on the steeple of our highest buildings. We tattoo it into our skin. We place it in our jewelry. Because this instrument of torture and shame is also the means of our salvation. And so I call on you now. Do not reject. Do not deny. And do not question him here now. Instead, Receive his mercy that flows from the cross. Receive his love that flows from his side. He is for you.